the last two points of the study from last week, um, the hope of the rapture, and then uh, why I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I've studied a lot of different um, prophecy teachers, and there's a lot of real, there's a number of very good ones. Uh, none of them have 100% agreement across the board. If I if I gave you 10 men that are that are very very scholarly, uh, you will not find agreement on every point among all 10. Uh, all of them will uh, have proper exegesis and hermeneutics and 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 good uh, good principles of Bible interpretation. Yet um, there's not going to be 100% agreement. Uh, what I don't want, uh, even though I have my scriptural views and I believe that they're well found in the scriptures, uh, I'm not dogmatic about these things. Some of the things uh, we will find out in time, ah, that's what it actually, you know, so we will we'll realize that some of these things will become more clear as the, as the return of Christ nears. Uh, that said, I think that, that uh, it's good to be settled uh, on the things that the Lord shows you, and I am settled personally uh, on the pre-tribulation rapture view, but that doesn't mean, uh, again, that the other views, uh, pre-wrath, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, aren't solid biblically. As a matter of fact, I think I could present the other three pretty well uh, and make the case for them, uh, but I think that the weight of evidence, uh, when you look at everything, um, I think the strongest case is made for the pre-tribulation view. And then after those, these two things that we'll cover, then we're going to look at things on the prophetic timeline that must take place but have not yet taken place, at least not in their complete fulfillment. There are things in the past that have taken place historically that would fit, uh, but a final fulfillment uh, will uh, be in the future, and we'll look at some of those things. And those are things that you can be watching right now in the headlines, and we'll take a look at those. So let's open up in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish with the two points uh, related to the hope of the rapture, and then we'll get into uh, the kind of next uh, things on the calendar, or the prophetic calendar. Father, we thank you for this time, this evening, your word. Bless it. Uh, use it uh, to strengthen uh, your body. Lord, we know that you've told us to hasten your return, and Lord, we want to not be filled with biblical knowledge, Lord, but be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to invite men to come to the marriage uh, supper. Uh, Lord, to be saved and to be uh, cleansed from the inside out by your precious blood. And Lord, we pray that you would just bless uh, the teaching of your word. Uh, we know that there is a blessing promise for those that read the words of prophecy, particularly the book of Revelation. But Lord, all of the prophetic uh, scriptures, Lord, we know that there's a blessing in understanding these things and being wise, and we ask, Lord, that you would just speak to us tonight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 2. So if you were here with us last week, I'll read them off. Don't have time to go back into them. Uh, I uh, did get copies made if you want last week's teaching. Of course, it'll be on the website tomorrow from last week. It would have been up uh, before that, but we had to make the master CD and everything. Uh, the seven or eight, uh, the eight things that we looked at last week, if you were taking notes, uh, 
in order. Number one, uh, the imminency of the return of Christ. That was being ready at any moment for Christ's return. That the early church could have could have seen the uh, rapture, the uh, rapture uh, as as well as us. So the imminency of Christ's return was number one. Then we looked at the hope that Jesus and the apostles maintained. Uh, then we, third, we looked at that the church is not overtaken. Even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 for that. Uh, fourth, the gospel of the end. Uh, we already know. And many, as a matter of fact, it was the gospel of the end. Some make the case that the gospel had already reached the whole world uh, from the early church. Uh, and that very well could have happened. You know, there's a lot of evidence that... Uh, that um, uh, there was uh, civilizations that communicated each, with each other, like the Phoenicians and others um, around the world, uh, many years ago. So whether that took place then, uh, we certainly know technologically the gospel can reach the whole world now with satellite communications, cell phones, TV, and everything else. That uh, We certainly have a ways to go with some of the languages being interpreted. Number five was the church. Uh, in the book of Revelation, in other words, we see the church specifically in chapters 1 through 3, uh, the church not specifically, uh, at least as the church, uh, we certainly see saints and, and martyrs uh, in chapters uh, 4 and 5, uh, we see John caught up to heaven and then uh, the wrath and the judgment from uh, chapters 6 through 19 where the church is not uh, specifically mentioned um, as a church body. We certainly see uh, the saints and we certainly see martyrs in that aspect as well. Uh, number six, uh, the church and the wrath of God, uh, believing that uh, the wrath of God was not being poured out and is not being poured out uh, on the church. Again, if you, if you listen to the pre-wrath view, uh, particularly with the first uh, five seals, the fifth seal, I don't have time to get any, any, any of this, but you'll see that um, you know, there's martyrs uh, very early on. The fifth seal, of course, uh, the blood of the martyrs there uh, and, and so there's people that hold that view that that actually is the church. Uh, my view and many others is that those are people that have already gotten saved in the rapture because we know that people continue to get saved all throughout the rapture. Uh, so anyway, uh, the church, uh, if you look at the dispensation, we talked about that too, that there is a difference between the church age, Jesus, till where we're at right now, we're in the church age, versus uh, the 70th week being that of Jacob's trouble. And that was our seventh point, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, the 70th week specific to Israel. And then uh, the eighth point that we looked at last week, the pre-tribulation view best supports the distinct difference between God's plan uh, for the church and for Israel. And we see that as well in the millennium return of the Levitical priesthood, a, a different dispensation altogether. Sacrifices will return. All that takes place in the millennium reign. So again, these are different dispensations. God, different sets of time. The pre-flood was a dispensation. Um, so we see these different sets of time where God is still sovereign, but he's worked differently. And so that brings us to uh, the ninth point, again, why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now this actually, 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, is cited by many people who, are, who hold a mid-tribulation and a pre-wrath view as a proof text that, uh, in fact, the church would be 
here on the earth, not raptured, but we would be here until the Antichrist is revealed, uh, and even that we would be here until he goes into the temple and desecrates it as the abomination of desolations. And this chapter 2 in Second Thessalonians is one of the proof texts that they point to. Ironically, I would point to it and others as proof why that's not what Paul is saying at all. So let's take a look at it. And again, I wouldn't break fellowship with someone who views it that way, but uh, understand the context of what Paul says here. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, uh, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's the rapture right there. He had already talked about this in 1 Thessalonians. Remember? He talked about it in 1 Thessalonians that we would be gathered unto him. Now, he says, we ask you, then verse 2, not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. In other words, Paul's saying, if you're getting letters or have received a letter, as if it was from us, it's not from us. If they are telling you you're in, he goes on to say, what does he say now? As though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ, I believe, is distinctly different from the previous verse. When he says our gathering together to him, that's the rapture. The day of Christ, I believe what Paul's saying here is synonymous with the day of the Lord. This is the judgment period. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the seven years. Now read it in understanding what Paul is saying. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together to him, they thought they, in other words, this would be like thinking, we've missed the rapture, or there's not a rapture, or the rapture is after we endure the day of the Lord. And Paul's saying, don't be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word, as if from us you were told this. As Paul is saying, we've never said that. We've never said that you, the church, now, again, many people would say, hold on, the church has endured much tribulation, much persecution, you know, fed to lions, all those different things. So if that's happened all through, why wouldn't the church go through the tribulation period? As a matter of fact, the greatest wrath against the church takes place no matter how you look at it, after the abomination of desolation, when Satan really turns his attention and turns up the heat. Now, people will be killed before that uh, as well. It's true that no matter when in history that there's been persecution. We're, we're seeing it right now uh, in other parts of the world. We personally uh, are not seeing that in America. We may see it here one day. Uh, Jesus said three times uh, to start there in Matthew chapter 24 that even you know, friend would betray one another. Uh, there would be uh, many that would hate one another, and there would be false Christ. And so we know that persecution uh, will be part of the beginning of sorrows. It'll be part of the beginning of the tribulation. It'll be part of the whole tribulation. Anytime people have ever named the name of Christ, there's going to be persecution. But that still doesn't... Paul still is, I believe, pointing out that there's still a difference in the dispensations, that the church age was set apart for the advancement of the gospel uh, with the church doing the majority of that work, and Israel was kind of 
set to the side until it was their time to come back to the forefront with the 70th week. And Paul is saying, um, the gathering together to him won't take place, um, or it has not taken place yet, and don't be troubled as if the day of Christ, in other words, the day of the Lord, or the seven-year tribulation, or the great tribulation, these are all synonymous, as if it had already begun. Now, they had reason to think they were already in the tribulation. They were under the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire was killing people. There was every reason for them to believe. Some said, we're already in the tribulation. We're already in the day. The day of the Lord's wrath has come, and it looks like Nero. It looks like Trajan. And it looks like, you know, uh, each of the Roman emperors. And so they would have thought that. In that verse 3, he goes, to say, goes on to say, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, what day? The day of the Lord, the day of the final judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, and the son of perdition. Now there is, uh, there is a falling away, uh, even in the, uh, now obviously the falling away uh, has been taking place. Paul talks about the apostasy. Jesus talks about the love of many growing cold. The falling away begins before the tribulation and certainly is heightened in the tribulation where then you have the false prophet will come. Uh, there will be all kinds of false representations and people will reject the Bible and actually pursue a man, and someday even take the mark of the beast and everything else, though not everybody will. The man of sin has revealed the son of perdition, who uh, opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and worships so that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, again, Paul's just saying these are the things that will take place in the seven-year tribulation. Do you not remember when I was still with you that I told you these things? In other words, do you not remember where we talked about the sequence of events? I told you these things, I walked you through it, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Uh, again, uh, there's a lot of debate on what this restraining is. I believe that restraining here is actually the Holy Spirit indwelling the church. Um, some people say, well, that means, uh, are you saying that the Holy Spirit won't be here after the church leaves? No. One of the best uh, examples I've seen of this is, was the Holy Spirit in the world before Pentecost? Absolutely. We see all through the Old Testament the Holy Spirit coming upon the prophets, the Holy Spirit coming upon judges. Was there a different work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Absolutely. And the church has been filled with the Holy Spirit ever since. We've been praying for a revival in this church and in all across the nation of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in my heart, in your heart, and yet we're still asking for a outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit clearly already can restrain whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do and will even restrain more in the tribulation period. And it will be even harder for people to make that call to follow Christ or to follow the devil. Whereas right now, Jesus is coming, you know, it, there's no, for the most part, everyone that hears has the opportunity to just call upon the name of the Lord. Now, they may be killed in other countries. I'm not saying that it's an easy uh, thing, that, uh, but the Holy Spirit is drawing all men to himself right now, and the church is the primary means of that. You and I uh, sharing the gospel, you and I one by one reaching one. So the restraining, there's also 
Uh, we are salt and light in the world. Imagine how wicked the world would be if there was all the Christians were removed. I mean, you talk about things becoming unhinged. And of course, for a period of time, that is exactly what would take place if the church is taken out. Uh, you would see a world system proliferate rather quickly. And some people will come to their senses and realize, wow, the Bible was true, but, but it's going to be a great cost then. It goes on in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Of course it's already at work. It's been at work since the Garden of Eden. The mystery of lawlessness has been around since way back in the Garden. It didn't take long even for Cain to kill his own brother. But the mystery of lawlessness continues to grow. It's already at work. He who now, your, most of your Bibles probably have capitalized he, in verse 7, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, the church removed out of the earth. And then the lawlessness one will be re- lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his might and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Don't have time to go through all of that, uh, but he does go on to say, um, uh, verse 17, drop down to verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish you um, wants them to be able to be comforted uh, by these things. In verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast. Uh, again, Paul's writing these things as an encouragement that, yes, Rome is wicked. Yes, there is great danger in being a believer. But the tribulation period, we're not in that. That will be a, there'll be a catching away first, and after the catching away, then there will be the revelation of the Antichrist. Eventually, he'll go into the temple. He'll desecrate the place. All those things will take place. Uh, but you haven't, see, Paul's saying, you haven't seen any of those things, uh, and you wouldn't see those things because those things would come after. And again, that's the, um, that's, again, when I look at this text, I see it that Paul is clearly correcting them from thinking uh, that. But again, uh, there are those that have a different view, and that is certainly... Uh, fine as well. One other thing about the day of Christ, because some people say, well, I, I don't know how, you know, the people say, well, that's, that's not the day of the Lord. The day of Christ can't be the day of the Lord. Well, think about, uh, turn with me real quick to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Um, notice in Revelation chapter 6, uh, when the world cries out about the wrath, notice who they attribute the wrath to. Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17. This is why when I say that Paul's making a delineation from the gathering together of verse 1 and the day of Christ, because he was saying, don't be afraid that you're under the day of Christ. You're not under the day of Christ. You want to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb, the day of Christ or the day of the Lord or the wrath of the Lord. Look at verses 16 and 17, Revelation 6, and they said to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, lambs aren't real wrathful, are they? This is, they not only, the world not only recognizes the day of Christ's wrath, they don't even refer to him as Christ. They go even lower than that and say wrath of the Lamb. They actually somehow, this is an odd thing, the Holy Spirit's restraining and revealing something at the same time. Going ahead, restraining uh, the fact that men can sin as much as they want. And yet the Holy Spirit is given some revelation that, oh, by the way, it's not just Christ, 
it's the lamb that's pouring out this wrath. Whereas before, you go tell your coworkers, say, what do you know about the lamb of God? They wouldn't ever think, well, the lamb of God pours out wrath. Wouldn't even cross their mind, but it'll cross their mind. And these are people that don't read Bibles, that don't know Bibles, and yet will know it's the wrath of the lamb, the day of Christ. Paul's saying that hasn't come yet. The gathering will come first, then the day of Christ will come. Uh, Revelation 19.11 says, uh, says something similar. Now, um, now I saw, again, we see the day of Christ represented in a different way. Now I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and him who sat was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who is it the one that comes to judge and makes war? Jesus Christ. He, the day of Christ, the day of wrath belongs to him, given to him by the Father, but again, it belongs to him. All right, that's point nine. Let's look at point ten, because we want to get into the other stuff tonight too. But the last one, um, really the strongest uh, one to, to me, or at least the most problematic for all the other views, uh, because I believe that sound arguments are made on all the other things, but uh, this one, this last one, uh, me personally, turn with me back to Matthew chapter 24, which was our kind of central text last several weeks, Matthew chapter 24. And I do apologize, I would love to go slower, but time is of the essence. Uh, I'll set a, I'll probably redo this in fall of 2015 and I'm going to put on my calendar way in advance and set aside more time. But I just felt like the Lord would have us do it. And I'm hoping you uh, are getting good things out of it. But again, I apologize that we're moving quickly. I'd like to go slower, but we can't. Matthew chapter 24. You know this passage. We read it a couple of times. Starting verse 36. But at that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We use some of this as relates to the eminence, but we're going to look at something else here. But of the day, as of the days of Noah were, so will the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days of Noah were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be taken and grinding, or two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. This, this text to me is problematic for all of the other views pre wrath, mid tribulation, and post tribulation. Very problematic. Not to say that pre tribulation doesn't have any problematic task if I brought up the other guys, they would all throw out verses that they would say. But again, this one to me is, is, is rather significant. Now, one quick thing about the whole 24th chapter, uh, just by way of review, because some of you have been here for some and not parts of others. Jesus, remember he's asked about what will be the signs of the end of the age, and he, and he starts with the temple. And that you know, the temple was only completed, really completed, it took... You know, I can't remember the exact number of years, but when it was finally completed, I mean fully completed, it only lasted like another seven years until it was destroyed. Isn't that amazing? All that years of work by Herod and all the, you know, sometime he had 10,000 men working on the temple at one time constantly. It was one of the wonders of the world. Uh, amazing. 
But Jesus started with the temple, that happened in AD 70, and then he talks about, in verses 4 through 14, uh, the beginnings of sorrows. In, in many respects, a lot of that has been happening from the time he went back. The beginning of sorrows has been the last 2,000 years to some, although the beginning of sorrows, like birth contractions, get more intense near the end. And that's where you have to go look at things like Daniel. There's an increase in knowledge. There's more knowledge increasing, people running to and fro. Some of those things didn't apply to 200 years ago, and certainly not to 2,000 years ago. So if you take Daniel's and Jesus uh, verses 1 through 14, there's been Spanish Inquisitions. There's been you know the Holy Roman Empire killing people. There's been all kinds of other things. There's been Crusades. There's been World War II. But the compression of them has been in the last, let's say, 100 years. So the beginning of sorrows can, can be all the last 2,000 years, but a compression. Then Jesus very clearly, verses 15 through 28, is all about the tribulation itself, the great tribulation, the seven years, the time of Jacob's trouble. Then Jesus talks about the very end of it all, and that's his judgment. The day of the Lord is the seven years, and yet the day of the Lord is also the final judgment when he comes to Armageddon and destroys the armies of the earth. And that's verses 29 through 31. The end of the end, right? The final, when he just unleashes, with the, he slays them with the sword of his mouth. Then Jesus kind of takes a pause back and goes back to, all right, for you guys, now learn this parable of the fig tree. If you can understand how a fig tree works, of course, Israel is representative of the fig tree as well. Uh, he says, you'll be able to see the signs of these things building. And then he goes into, so again, he, he, synopsis, 2,000 years, compression, seven years, and then he goes, now, back to as you're living, you'll be able to watch for these things. But what is he talking about in verses 36 through 43 of that day and the hour? Well, this is, I believe, speaking to those that would be raptured because he says this will happen very suddenly. The world will be quasi-normal, wicked, of course, reprobate, of course. I mean, look around us right now. There's all kinds of wickedness, and yet there's still a normalcy. And there still will be a normalcy when Jesus comes to take his people, the church. Now, this word taken, take a look um, in verse 41. Same word in verse 40 as well. So verse 40 and 41 both use the words, now two men will be in the field and one will be taken. Some might uh, say, well, this is actually, they're, they're judged. This is actually God consuming a couple of people. No, that's not, that's, not what the, that's not what the Greek says. Uh, the Greek word here is parlambano. Parlambano, it means to take two, to take two, to take with oneself, to join oneself as an associate, a companion. That's, none of those are judgment terms. This is, this is taken to, taken away. Uh, it's, used, it's used only 50 times in the New Testament. Parlambano is only used 50 times. 30 times it means to take. 15 times it means to receive. 
Two times it means to take unto. Two times it means to take up. And once it means to take away. It always means to take or receive. Now, interestingly, in John 14, 3, Jesus said these words, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Not once does the word itself mean death or judgment or destruction. Even though millions will die in the tribulation, not once does it, that word ever in the New Testament mean destruction or death. It always means taken taken unto, received. The word left, because there's not only two people taken here, there's also two people left. Yeah, where we get the, the movie series Left Behind, right? Left. Well, the Greek word here is afiami, um, and it's mean, it's, it has a number of meanings, but among them, listen to some of the meanings of afiami, to send away to bid going away or depart, of a husband divorcing his wife, to yield up, to expire, to let alone, to disregard. Those are very negative terms. So the left behind person is clearly not being received, not being taken up, not in a good place. The left behind person is left alone, disregarded, and is in a bad place. It's used 146 times, that word in the New Testament. The other one's only used 50 times. This one's used 146 times. Um, so uh, we actually know that Jesus said, and if you, you look at some of those words, for example, uh, 14 times the word uh, left means to suffer. Uh, six times the word left in the New Testament means to forsake. And we know that Jesus, in Hebrews 13, 5, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, to me, it's very clear. Um, and then the biggest problem uh, is if you, if you hold to a post-tribulation view, or if you hold to a pre-wrath view or a pre-tribulation view, you can't find a scenario in the tribulation period where the unsaved world wants to hang out with you and just chill walking down the road with you. Hey, you're wearing the mark of the beast. I'm not. Let's just hang out. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and then on top of all that, um, there's no normalcy once mountains are moved out of their place, once rivers are turned. You know, there's all kinds of things that take place even before uh, the wrath of between the sixth and seventh seal in, in um, Revelation ch chapter six and Revelation chapter seven, even before the sixth and seventh seal, you've got a litany of disasters and catastrophes all over the world. Uh, it, it's there's not a normal period, and Christians by the fifth seal are are being martyred. Those that have turned to Christ after the rapture. Um, they're not walking with their co-workers even there because that's where it says, wait a little while. It just doesn't, what Jesus is describing here is uniquely tied back to the catching away, the harpazo, the gathering together in the air, and it doesn't seem to fit any of the other views. Uh, so my first point, my tenth point, are the two biggest to me, the imminent return of Christ and this section of Matthew chapter 24 to be taken away in a good way. Now, 
That was concluding our hope of the rapture. Ready to change gears, Bible students. Right now, in our lifetime, there are prophecies that could easily take place that we want to take a look at that have yet to take place, at least in, fu- even, uh, at least in complete fulfillment. And the first place I want you to turn to is Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17. You may be familiar with the burden against Damascus. And we're going to start there. Isaiah 17. All right, I'm going to read just a few verses. All of these, I wish I could read every single verse because uh, the whole 17th chapter is pivotal in understanding the, the peace uh, placement of thing. But let's start with the first couple of verses. Verse 1, Isaiah 17, The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of uh, Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which will lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Uh, The fortress will also cease from Ephraim, which is northern Israel, which was the northern kingdom. The kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, In that day it will come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain that... uh, reaps the heads with his arm, it shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its branch, uh, four or five in its most fruitful branches. Uh, and it goes on in verse 7, in that day man will look to his maker and have respect for the Holy One of Israel. Israel will actually look to God, but this is not them believing in the Messiah yet. Look at verse 10. It says, uh, because you have forsaken... Uh, actually, verse 9 is important too. In that day, the cities will be as forsaken bow and uppermost branch, which they have become, which they have left because of the children of Israel, uh, and there will be desolation because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and not been mindful of the rock. That's a reference to Jesus. The rock of your, south, of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant... Pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings, which, by the way, Israel has tons of foreign plants planted right now. When you go there, much of what they've done is they brought in plants from around the world and they flourished there. They've done this before. They're going to do it again. We'll get to that in a second. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and your foreign seedlings. In the day you make your plant grow, in the morning you will make your seed flourish, but the harvest will be as a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas. I'll stop there because that's actually getting, um, I believe, to another another, uh, prophetic moment, which we'll look at in a second. So go back to the the first verse. I had to read all that because the first verse, if you just focused only on the destruction of Damascus, although that's a really big deal, why? Well... Damascus is considered the world's oldest continuously inhabited city. It's the oldest city in the world. Uh, Damascus has never ceased to be a city. Damascus has been um, run over, right? It's been run over. The Assyrians uh, ran over Damascus, but it's still, I mean, even though it was, remember, think about London. 
when London in World War II, it was, I mean, Germany bombed London, and in parts of London were just a smoldering mess. Did London still exist as a city? Yes. Was it a smoldering mess of a city? Yes. Well, uh, Damascus has had moments like that, where it it actually destroyed more than London was, uh, but yet it's always been a city. It still held its city-state, even though at times it was, you know, barely hanging on, right? So it was uh, nearly destroyed, but not completely destroyed. What this says is it will cease from being a city, and it will be a complete ruinous ash heap. And nearby, only flocks and animals would ever walk over it. It would not anymore be a city. Well, that's not happened. Damascus continues to be a city. And there's many that believe, uh, there's many that, uh, Bible scholars that think that this only refers to what Assyria did to Damascus. Uh, I don't think that's true because you've got to look at the whole rest of the chapter. The whole rest of the chapter tells part of the story. Now, there was a partial fulfillment of this uh, in biblical times. There was where uh, Damascus, which was Syria, and you have Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel. They were actually, get this, Syria and the northern kingdom were in an alliance against Judah, which was the brothers of the northern kingdom. Kind of like the north against the south in our own country. And so there, uh, there was, in both their cases, um, judgment from the Lord, where Syria was judged. Assyria came and wiped out Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. So they both had the same demise. It came from the Assyrians. So there was a partial fulfillment of this, but it doesn't tell the whole story because it also talks about Jacob and the glory of Jacob waning and uh, the things that would relate uh, to Jacob. And part of what we can look at here uh, is also understood by turning to Psalm 83. Turn to Psalm 83 for a second. So on the one hand, we're looking at when um, we're looking at when Damascus will be destroyed. And then in Psalm 83, Psalm of Asaph, we see a conspiracy. Start at verse 4. Uh, in the middle of verse 3, and they consulted together against your sheltered ones. Psalm 83, middle of verse 3. Again, just for the sake of time. And they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Do you realize all of Israel's neighbors have all said they want to cut Israel off as being a nation? They want to drive Israel into the Mediterranean Sea and wipe it off the face of the earth so it's not a nation. For they have consulted together with one consent to form a confederacy against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gibal, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. And of course, all that would have been uh, where's today uh, modern-day Jordan. And then it goes on to say, Lord, how you will deal with them. In verse 10, fill their faces with shame. Let them seek your name. Let the... Uh, let they, they may seek your name, let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Um, talks about God coming across them like a whirlwind. So we have this confederacy in Psalm 83, and if you go back 
just kind of follow me for a second. Go back to uh, Isaiah 17. Damascus is still a city today, 2.5 million people. Hasn't been destroyed in all of its history, completely destroyed. It's never ceased to be a city, but eventually it will cease to be a city. It will be wiped off. It'll be an ash heap. Now, how does a city become an ash heap really fast? Well, we have the advent of modern nuclear weapons. Israel owns them. The main reason why Israel has maintained getting into full-scale wars since, uh, since the early 70s is the Arab world and beyond the Arab world, the Muslim world is not just the Arab world, which you'll see in a second, but the Muslim world knows that Israel truly will use the Samson, um, the Samson option if they have to. Remember Samson, what he did? The Samson option is a last resort. And if Israel had to use nuclear weapons, they would use them and their neighbors know it. Now, some of their neighbors are trying to get nuclear weapons as well. And that that's, could play into this. Now, that doesn't mean that Damascus has to be destroyed by nuclear weapons. Damascus could be destroyed inch by inch, uh, line, uh, city block by city block by a conventional war as well. The Bible doesn't tell us how it becomes an ash heap, the fact that it does. What I find interesting, verse 17 uh, if you go back to things where, uh, like where we have had nuclear fallout, take Chernobyl, which that city became a ghost town overnight. And there was nuclear radiation issues for, I can't remember what the circumference was around it, but notice that it says that the northern kingdom of Israel, all of a sudden the trees don't grow as much fruit. That's odd. That there, that there is an impact to the northern part of Israel, and Damascus is only about 40 miles from the Israeli border. Matter of fact, when we were in the Golan Heights, which used to belong to Syria until Israel took it back in the six-day, took it over in the Six-Day War, you can look across and you can see Damascus, at least the outskirts of it, far off in the distance because you're high enough at a vantage point. It's only about 40 miles. Uh, if there was a nuclear detonation on Damascus, the fallout would most assuredly affect Israel's agriculture at minimum in the northern part of Israel and all the way down probably to the midway point. It depends on what's detonated, what the elevation of the detonation is. The lower it is, the worse it is. So these are things to consider. Uh, I want to take a look at a couple of maps that kind of um, help understand... Make sure my clicker's on. Try it from this angle. And if not, all right. Did I go forward a couple? Yeah. That's what I want to start with. Okay. This is, um, now, uh, what's interesting is um, uh, different prophecy teachers, again, I respect a lot of what they write. I don't agree with every one of them. Um, Joe Richardson, great Bible uh, prophecy teacher, he wrote, (laughs) uh, he does not think the Psalm, he doesn't think the Psalm 83 Confederacy um, is something that will happen in the future. I personally do. Uh, and it's funny because he says, he says this, he says, ultimately, um, speaking of, um, of Syria, it uh, neither points fully to Syria nor Iraq or Turkey, but only to a relatively small region or section. Um, he's speaking of the fact that uh, Assyria doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the list because he's saying that Assyria, at the time that Asap wrote Assyria, was writing, 
this was all Assyria was right here. That's almost an identical map of what ISIS is now. When Asaph wrote that, that was about what's now Assyria ended up being way bigger than that. Remember, it came off and came over and destroyed Damascus, northern kingdom. Again, didn't wipe Damascus off the face of the earth, but it, it took the city, killed many people. But at that time, it, that was about the size of Assyria before it became an empire that was much, much larger. So what you have here in the list of Psalm 83, Edom, Ishmael, Moab, Hagarites, all the way down, Assyria being the last one, what I did is I took a box and I showed what landmass that covers. And all that it covers, all are nations of ethnic Arab majorities. They're all Arab nations. There's, there's other Muslim nations, but not all Muslim nations are Arab nations. Indonesia, for example, is a Muslim nation, but not an Arab nation. Iran is a Muslim nation, but not an Arab nation. Make sense? There's African nations that are Muslim nations, but they're not Arab nations. This contingent that ASAP tells us about are all Arab nations, or at least not nations, they're all Arab groups. And they don't have to be a nation because we know that ISIS is not a nation. It's actually a, a bunch of tribes, a bunch, they're Arab jo joining together, and they actually right now are in three, two or three countries, right? They're covering over, they, they don't even recognize international borders or anything like that. So this is the area. Now, in our lifetime, we have ISIS, we have Al-Qaeda, we have Hezbollah, who is not in agreement with ISIS. Actually, Hezbollah and ISIS uh, can't stand each other. That still can change because several of the groups that have joined ISIS couldn't stand ISIS two months ago. So the consolidation hasn't finished yet anyway. And then you have Hamas down here, which is part of the Palestinian um, on the... Um, Gaza Strip as well as on the, in the West Bank. And then you have Saudi Arabia, which is down here. Saudi always, this is what Saudi Arabia always provides. Somebody has to pay for the weapons. Saudi Arabia builds, Saudi Arabia sits way back in the back, backdrop. You know, they fund a lot of things, but they act like, what's going on here? Right? The mosques are built by them. They fund, there's a lot of funneling. So Saudi's have funded a lot of things, although the other thing that's important is in the next slide. I'm moving fast. I wish I had more time, but this tells you it's the same block. This is Sunni versus Shia Muslim. Iran is almost all Shia. Iran does not like the Sunni contingent. The Sunni contingent doesn't like Iran. But Iran's not the only Shia. There's other Shias up in Azerbaijan, Afghanistan, part of Yemen. And then a lot, uh, Lebanon has a fair number of Shia as well. Hezbollah is Shia, whereas Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and ISIS are all Sunni. Does that mean Hezbollah can't work with them? Currently, no, but give it some time. They've actually worked out agreements in the past <laughs> for, things, for other things. Uh, the other thing, though, which is interesting is Lebanon is ethnically Arab but has a sizable number of Shia. At some point, blood and water both start to come. To, you know, you start to say ethnic Arab, Shia, 
Sunni, and you can actually find common ground under either the ethnic Arab piece or the Sunni piece. The best of both worlds is all the countries that are both. They're both ethnically Arab and they're, Shia, and they're um, Sunni. But anyway, the, all, of the, all of the nations that are in the Psalm 83 Confederacy are Arab and pi primarily Sunni. Now, what does all that mean for the first um, uh, that could take place uh, in our lifetime? Each of these Arab nations, um, Jerusalem is considered the third most holy city in Islam after Mecca and Medina. If these nations decide, or groups, and it doesn't have to be nations, they can all be riled up by terrorist organizations that overtake the government, and they, uh, again, to set up the caliphate. Where do they want to set up the caliphate? Jerusalem. It's in their... ISIS, you don't have to... You don't believe me? Go search it. ISIS says their ultimate goal is to set up the caliphate, not in Damascus, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where they want to set up the... the Caliphate. That is the place that they want. So these countries can come together militarily, financially, and at some point come against Israel. Now, if Israel feels like their backs are against the wall, which is the closest major city? To, well, there's already tons of fighting in Syria anyway. It, most of it to, currently is east of Damascus. Where did Israel attack just over the weekend? all around the Damascus airport. It was over the weekend. Uh, Israel still hasn't claimed it, <laughs> but the smoldering smoke and the Israeli planes uh, were a dead giveaway. I've watched the video of... Uh, so that was over the weekend. Uh, Israel already... And, of course, Russia has a problem with this. Vladimir Putin didn't like it. So they dropped bombs and um, took out weapon systems outside of Damascus. If the Arab alliance came against Israel, again, Saudi Arabia might not be in the contingent militarily, just monetarily. And would perhaps be in the background, but ASAP would still know that they would somehow be involved. If that were to come forward towards Israel, if Israel was pushed into a corner and things were getting close, Damascus only 40 miles from the border, Samson auction. Just take out Damascus. We have to. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. It's certainly a possibility. It certainly fits with Isaiah 17 and then uh, Psalm 83, the Confederacy. And you also have um, the fact that the, Israel does suffer. It's not, this war does not, this war is not all wars. Remember when the North beat the South? The North suffered greatly. Many men died. The, the northern kingdom of Israel, which is not the northern kingdom today, the, the northern area of Israel would, would have cities that would be greatly damaged. Agriculture would be greatly damaged. If there was nuclear fallout, not saying there is, I mean, you could actually have other contributing reasons why the plants weren't growing as much. But again, whatever the reason is, the northern part of Israel clearly suffers, but you can lose some battles and still win the war. If Israel smoked the contingent and was left, you know, you ever seen two guys in a fight and the guy that they put the hand up 
like can't open one eye, but he's still the winner, clearly, because the other guy is still knocked out on the canvas, right? Out cold. The contingent would be out cold, and Israel would be left there with like a big swollen eye with an ice pack on it, but able to recover. Now, one thing about Israel, they recover amazingly fast, and that's what Isaiah 17 seems to indicate. Not only do they take some shots, some serious body blows, that Damascus is destroyed, the contingent is destroyed, according to Psalm 83, but Israel somehow bounces back again. There's one thing we know about Israel in their thousands of years of existence. They always bounce back, given the opportunity to bounce back. And they apparently will. And it looks like they bounce back. If you go back to Isaiah 17... Go back to Isaiah 17, it says, verse 11, the day that you'll make your plant grow and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will reap, uh, will harvest will be a reap of ruin in the day of grief and desperate sorrows. So they do make everything flourish again, and yet it all goes south again. Hmm, what could that mean? We'll come back to that in a second. My, I, I want to, um, just while you're still in Isaiah, jump over to Isaiah 19. Go to Isaiah 19. Another thing that could could happen simultaneously, same time frame, before the Damascus or before the Arab Confederacy comes against Israel. Again, I believe an Arab Confederacy will be built at some point. An Arab Confederacy built mostly from Sunni nations, all Arab, all surrounding Israel. Why is Egypt not in the mix? They're conspicuously missing from the list. Egypt's not in, did you notice? Egypt's not in the list. Well, the reason why Egypt's not in the list is my number two on here. Number one is Damascus and the Arab Alliance. Number two is Egypt and the Nile River. Egypt has their own problems to deal with and can't help. Even though in all past times when the Arab contingents have come together, Egypt not only was part of it, but Egypt was the ringleader. But Egypt can't help in this one because verse 19, uh, chapter 19, starting verse 1, the burden against Egypt, behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence. The heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in the midst. I will destroy their council. Now this has happened in the past. Israel in ancient times, uh, was split up into 12 different uh, states or kingdoms, and they fought against each other. So there's been partial fulfillment, but the full fulfillment, and, and again, the Bible, when you study Midrash, prophecy goes like this, and it gets bigger as it gets near the end. The full fulfillment comes. Well, the part that hasn't happened is just like Damascus has never ceased to be a city, the Nile River has never ceased to just completely dry up. Verse... Um, Verse 5, the waters will fail from the sea. Of course, that's the Mediterranean where the delta of the Nile is. Will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds in the river by the mouth river. And everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away and no more. The fishermen will also mourn. So Egypt ends up having a complete collapse. Their river dries up. They go into a civil war, 
And so even though they don't like Israel either, they have bigger fish to fry. Mainly, they are fighting for their own lives. And this could be happening parallel, similar time frame. Interesting enough, Egypt, you know, this is great. You know when hatred actually outweighs love? Egypt might be saying they're Arab brethren. Can anyone come help us? No, we're going to kill Israel. You're on your own. I'm not saying that to the exact same time frame because we don't know how the timing works. But nevertheless, the Nile, go, you can go see the Nile River today. You can ride in the Nile River. It's not dried up at all, but it could happen, and it could happen in our lifetime. How is that? Well, by the way, the Nile River drying up is also told prophetically in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 12, and Zechariah chapter 10, verse 11. Three times it tells us the Nile River will be dried up. There's four great rivers in the Bible that are mentioned. The Jordan River, the Euphrates, the Tigris, and the Nile. Although the Nile is never mentioned as the Nile, it's called the River of Egypt or the Great River or the River, different things like that. But it always refers to the Nile River. So those are the great rivers. And by the way, the Euphrates will also dry up in the book of Revelation. We see for the kings of the east to come forward. Um, this, is, uh, this was actually... Um, I got, it's great that we have the internet today. I can actually read Egyptian newspapers. This was in the Daily News of Egypt, March 22nd, 2014. And it says this, Ethiopia's controversial Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam will be able to generate electricity in 2015, according to the Ethiopian Foreign Ministry. Two of the dam's 16 turbines will be creating uh, generating 375 megawatts of power each by 2015. That's next year. According to the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I love this, listen to the Egypt, the Egyptian ministry added that, that Ethiopia's continuing of the construction process at the dam site violates all the well-known international legal principles regarding projects and or constructions on international rivers. Why would Egypt care what Ethiopia is doing? Because the headwaters of the Nile, 80% of the water comes from where? Ethiopia. 80% of the water of the Nile comes from Ethiopia. Comes, so Ethiopia has entered modern age and says, we want to generate megawatts. We want to harness the power of the river. We want the economic benefit. We want to sell electrical power to other African nations. And Ethiopia has always been except for a couple times, there was a couple of times in ancient times where Ethiopia gained the upper hand on Egypt, but most of the time in all of history, most of the time Egypt's had the upper hand, and then a few times, it's kind of like the Red Sox and the Yankees. Most of the time the Yankees have had the upper hand on the Red Sox. Every now and then, the Red Sox have gotten the upper hand. In ancient history, every now and then Ethiopia got the upper hand, but Egypt was always on top. Well, Ethiopia, they saw an opening when Egypt had its civil war. Remember the Arab Spring? As soon as that happened, they went quickly into getting plans going on the dam because prior to that, Hosni Babarak kept an air base in southern Egypt, and he would bomb the Ethiopians in a New York minute if they ever tried to build a dam. Why? Because the, the Nile River is the lifeline to Egypt. If the river's dammed up, now they're not, they're not planning to dam the river up and dry up the Nile. That's why they're having all these negotiations and lots of seats at the table, and no one wants to, uh, no one wants to have the river dried up. But the, if the river is dried up, it may not be just the dam. 
it can be it can be a multitude of reasons. It can be partially the dam. It can be uh, at the same time. If you built a dam and you had a couple of years of drought at the exact same time, so you could have a convergence of things. And so it's hard to say exactly what would be uh, causing it, but the dam certainly could be a big deal uh, because that's where 80% of the water comes from. So uh, Egypt, for whatever reason, civil war and the Nile drying up, they're not part of the Arab Confederacy. They are not part of the attack on Israel, and therefore uh, it makes perfect sense why we don't see Israel in that alliance, and we don't see Israel, I mean, we don't see Egypt in the alliance of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we may or may not get to, uh, maybe a, f a few minutes, and then we'll have to come to an end. Uh, Egypt and the Nile, the third one that may happen in our lifetime, um, is Israel in the temple. If you go to Israel, you can walk on the Temple Mount, but right now today is the Dome of the Rock there. Yes, it's true that there, there are there is space to put a small, much smaller temple, which would be north of the Dome of the Rock. There is, there is the space for it. Uh, I don't think that that necessarily means that that is what, I don't think that that necessarily means that is what um, will happen, even though you could put one there. I think a more plausible scenario, and I think it sets the stage for the fourth point, which we probably won't get to tonight, but I'll at least mention it to you. I think the more plausible thing, if you look at the Bible and you look at the sequence, how it could happen, Arab alliance comes against Israel. Israel defeats them badly, but suffers a lot of body blows. Israel suffers a loss of vegetation and things in the northern part of, the, in the northern part of Israel. Egypt is not a part of the equation because their rivers dried up, and they're having major problems internally in their own country. Israel wins so decisively, it's the Arab nations primarily that were trying to set up the caliphate. Where? In Jerusalem. Israel no longer has to worry about bothering them or offending them. They've just soundly defeated them. They can go ahead and remove the Dome of the Rock. There's no, at that point, you've just, you've just soundly defeated, uh, and they will have the bargaining chip of saying, hey, their religion tried to set up, and again, I'm not saying this is, I'm just saying this, this could all fit. Israel could go ahead and start building the temple during that time. Isaiah 17 seems to indicate that Israel rebuilds, rebounds, and reflourishes, but the space is rather short for them to enjoy it. That sets the stage. Again, number three is Israel in the temple. I don't have a lot to say about that other than it has to be built. Why? Because the 70th week of Daniel says there has to be a temple. There has to be an abomination of desolations. To, there has to be a place for the Antichrist to walk in and desecrate. There's currently not today. So it has to be built. I believe, again, my own personal study of the Scripture, I believe it happens after Damascus is destroyed, after Israel defeats an Arab confederacy, and essentially defeats the biggest chunk of the Islamic world. It's not the Islamic world has ended. Their armies will be defeated. There'll still be many Muslims. They will regather re strength at some point eventually as well. By the way, no matter who loses wars in the Middle East, they never give up. They only come back years later. You ever understand that? 
It's never over. That's why Jesus has to end it with the battle of garment. It will never end. You, unless both sides are completely dead, it never ends. So Israel would probably reestablish everything, get everything back to looking normal, and then comes Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because Russia has sat back and let all those nations there kind of destroy each other, Israel still would be left. And we don't have time to go through that, but that's just kind of setting the stage for that's where we want to go next. That would be the next piece of the puzzle because still there's another confederacy that emerges, and the other confederacy is none of the other ones. By the way, that's another map of um, all in yellow. Those are Arab ethnicities. You see Egypt is also Arab in ethnicity. They should be with the contingent. How did the Bible know they wouldn't be? They should be, though, but they're not. Um, but you can see over here Iran, Sunni, northern part of Iraq, all the way up into Turkey, because none of them, ethnically, much more different than this part of the world, ethnically, they align more with Russia. Religiously, they don't align with Russia. But ethnically, um, it's such a hodgepodge that it's easy for Russia to gain a consensus because the ethnic differences are kind of diverse. And Russia's pretty experienced in this. They had the whole Soviet Union. They've done this before. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but Vladimir Putin aims to do it again, to cobble together back again all these different ethnicities and confederacies. Uh, for uh, We'll have to get to Ezekiel 38, 39. We've got to stop there. Uh, what my plan is this. I knew I wouldn't get through it tonight um, because we had to finish the uh, last two points of the rapture, and I knew that if I didn't have that, we would have been done tonight. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to probably pick a Sunday uh, uh, a 9 a.m. sometime before the end of this month for anyone that wants to come and finish it out, you will be more than welcome to do so. Uh, if, if you want to see, uh, this is what we have to cover. Gog and the Russia-Iranian alliance. Okay, Russia and Iran, I believe, will sit and hold their horses and let all this other stuff happen first. Now, they don't know. It's not like they're reading their Bibles. They're not... Uh, not like uh, Iran said, well, Egypt's going to, the Nile River's going to dry up. So, you know, not like Iran's doing that. I, they don't look at the Bible as truth. They are, wait, they are waiting because the enemy, in some cases, and the Holy Spirit in other cases, is just holding things in place because they, for whatever reason, say, well, we want to continue to work on our nuclear weapons. We won't proceed forward until we have a nuclear weapon, if you're in case of Iran. Russia, of course, already has all that. Uh, so we'll look at why that confederation will come together. You know, what is it about Turkey and Ethiopia and uh, Libya and these other nations? Why would they all come together with Russia? Why do we think Russia is there? Because some people don't see that in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, I clearly do. We'll look at that. That's the fourth point. And then we'll look at number five. China and the Far East Consolidation. China and the Far East Consolidation. They also 
are, well, China's hiding in plain sight. You know that term, right? Hiding in plain sight. China's hiding in plain sight. They are flexing muscle like nobody's business, and most of our leaders are completely no clue. Exactly the way Japan built up prior to World War II. And uh, matter of fact, Japan used to have diplomats just weeks before Pearl Harbor laughing and smiling with our diplomats. I've got pictures of it. It's interesting to see, just weeks before. Um, and then the last one that we'll look at, so four, five, and six, Gog and the Russia Alliance, China and the Far East Consolidation, and the last one, the global consolidation and the Ten Kingdom rule of the revived Roman Empire. All of these are starting. To me, when you look at the Bible, they're all, you ever played Risk? Anyone ever played Risk? The map is starting to come into formation. The players are in their place. The stage is set. All of these things could happen quickly. It could be another 50 years. It could be 10 years. It could be five years. But the stage is set. There's really nothing left other than God to do this. To one domino. And there they go. Isn't that interesting? One little match strike can strike it all. And these things could come together. And again, a lot of these things are already, um, uh, again, are already uh, coming together. But um, we've got to stop there. Was this helpful? Sorry we're moving so fast, but... Um, we will fit in the last piece on a Sunday morning because otherwise I'm looking at a Wednesday night in January because next Wednesday we have our praise and prayer service. The Wednesday after that is a Christmas Eve service. The Wednesday after that is our New Year's, Fel New Year's Eve fellowship. So this is it. So I've got to do a Sunday morning, 9 o'clock. Uh, that's where we find out who the real Sunday school candidates will be. The true, if we're ever going to have a Sunday school, this is my chance to find who would really be the candidates for a Sunday school. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time in your word. Lord, we know that we can see these things, uh, and some things are clear and some things are rather dim. Lord, only you know exactly how these things will unfold. We pray, Lord, that you would just continue to give us uh, hearts that desire to be more like you, that we'd be watching, waiting, but in fact working and sharing the gospel with people that don't know you. Uh, for, Lord, these things will come upon the world suddenly, and, uh, Lord, we want to be ready for your return. And, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.